on exploring why that person didn't want to be resuscitated, they said that uh, their family member had gone through an intensive care experience and that's something that they didn't want to go through themselves. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. Here, we've regularly talked about the limits of medicine, where treatment doesn't work or potentially harms. But in that conversation, we focused mainly on specific treatments. However, a new analysis published on bmj.com broadens that to talk about patients being admitted to a whole ward intensive care. The authors of that article contend that often patients or their families, and it's often families in the kind of emergencies which cause people to be admitted to ICU, that they contend that they don't fully understand the implication of that admission, and also that that point of admission isn't the right place or time for people to be faced with that. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and to talk about admission to ICU, I'm joined by one of the authors of that article. Jamie Gross is a consultant in intensive care medicine at Northwick Park in London. Jamie, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us. Thank you very much for having me. Now, reading this article, um, you're an intensive care doctor. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is your bread and butter. Um, But it feels like this has been uh, something that must have been bothering you for a while. Has this been sort of playing on your mind? Well, it has really. Um, I've been an intensivist. Well, I've been training uh, for a good number of years now uh, and I've been a consultant for a few years. Uh, And one thing I've always noticed is uh, we are referred many patients on a daily basis. Uh, Patients uh, are critically unwell, obviously, um, hence the reason for admission, uh, for a referral to intensive care. And often these can occur out of hours in emergency situations. Um, and it's o- often difficult then to have, when you're looking at a decision-making process as to whether or not you should admit the patient, um, there's a number of factors that weigh in to decide whether a patient should or shouldn't come. And one of those factors really is... Um, the, a balance of the risks versus the benefits of intensive care, but also what the patient's wishes are. Uh, patients often, when they are are referred to us, are uh, incapacitated by the effects mm-hmm. of acute illness, mm-hmm. and often family members have have never discussed these things with their their loved one before. So often it's a it's a best guess as to what the patient would or wouldn't want. Uh, family members are often in this put in the situation, perhaps unfairly, um, of to trying to decide what that person would have wanted. Um, and often what happens as a result of whether there's any doubts, we would bring them to in- intensive care anyway. Um, and with that, as as the article suggests, uh, that's fraught with. Uh, potential adverse effects and adverse consequences as well. Mm. So really the purpose of the article is to uh, try and highlight more about what intensive care is and encourage people to think about intensive care uh, in the whole context of care that one might receive in an acute hospital setting um, to allow them the opportunity to explore more information should they want to um, and also to express their wishes to their loved ones. Mm. 
So we're also joined by Barry Williams. Now, Barry has a long experience of working in healthcare, but he became the patient representative at the Intensive Care Society after his wife spent a long time in ICU. Um, Barry, thank you very much for, for taking some time to, to talk to us. And I just wanted to, to start by asking you, what made you um, want to get involved and, and talk about um, the experience of being in intensive care? It all centred around my wife's uh, prolonged stay in intensive care in 2003. Um, she was admitted suddenly, uh, without warning, and um, although I had lots of experience in the health service, um, and being in and out of intensive care, it's up and down the country in my own hospitals, uh, I never, never quite expect, experienced it from the patient's point of view, the relative's point of view. And when you, you put that hat on and go to the, a unit, it's quite uh, dis disturbing, distressing, and very different from what you've experienced as a sort of professional manager in the health service. Um, and the thing that struck me was, um, we eerily, the sound of the machines, uh, my wife's lying there, um, absolutely still, um, almost comatose by that time, um, and almost the hushed silence and briskness of, of the department as everybody gets around their business, um, and it was that sort of eerie silence that, that disturbed my else, plus the machines whirring away in the background. I think also, um, at that stage, it was impossible for the medics to give me a fairly clear understanding of what was going on and what the prognosis was. In the cool light of day, you can understand that, and as a, as a, a, a disinterested observer, you can understand that, but as a relative, and it's your wife there, you have difficulty understanding that they can't explain to you what exactly is going on, what the prognosis will be. And yet, deep down, you know that's the situation. You have experience of taught you that. It feels like these kind of conversations, you know, they didn't used to happen in oncology. And now, you know, these kind of frank conversations about what the burden of treatment is starting to happen. Uh, uh, and that's become kind of normal. And I'm thinking, you know, as well, you've, we've seen a pro proliferation in um, patients requesting do not resuscitate orders on, on, on their notes. Um, and again, because they've become aware of the what that process would might mean for them, um, but I don't think I've heard anyone talk about this in terms of of a general admission to, to ICU. Are these conversations happening in the profession, or or is this just the very beginning of this? So I think I think that has been looked at, and there has been a, a quite a bit of national traction. Um, there are certain initiatives that are. Are, have been developed and have tr and have been driven. Um, an example, for example, is the um, respect, uh, um, which is essentially um, so a, a form which which attempts to replace the DNA CPR form. So it looks at CPR decisions in a wider context of escalation decisions in the hospital setting. Um, another example is the Amber Bundle, uh, which was produced at uh, Tommy's. Um, and that looks at trying to identify patients early in the hospital stay uh, of those that are um, end of life, essentially, um, and trying to promote those early discussions, again, uh, in the wider contents of not just CPR, but also uh, what should happen um, if 
if one becomes more unwell mm-hmm. um and and the amber itself is looking for those that are have uh, non largely non reversible conditions uh, but i think the whole the whole concepts of having as you quite rightly said is very difficult and probably not feasible to have these discussions for every person um and so therefore what we want to do is try and focus the efforts on those that are are, are at risk of of potential harm from uh, escalation of care in the hospital setting including going to intensive care um and that sometimes in some certain patients as you said, it's quite it's quite easy to identify those that are towards end of life. So, as you mentioned, um, someone who's got metastatic cancer. Um, for those that are young with no comorbidities, who are completely independent, um, yes, of course, in the ideal world, we would have discussions with this with everyone. Uh, but they're the, probably not the type of patients that we necessarily need to focus on. Um, but then there's a grey area in between, um, and. Frailty, for example, is is a particular patient group uh, which might warrant further um, research and further uh, initiatives to see whether um, promoting such discussions, not necessarily even in the hospital setting, you know, um, sometimes these discussions perhaps in certain patients might want to start in the community setting when they're relatively well and at their baseline. Uh, but, But further work certainly needed to try and perhaps better identify those that are at risk of um, going downhill quite rapidly in a hospital and being referred to us at two in the morning. What I wanted to ask you was, uh, now Jamie said there that um, it's difficult uh, to have the conversation about what an admission to intensive care is going to be like. And I just wonder, did you have that conversation with medics or, or with anyone or did your wife before... Um, before she yeah, was admitted, these things can move so quickly. My wife went into the emergency. Some patients will go in as um, following on from elective surgery, um, and there's no real question of sitting down and talking about these two things because everything's happening so quickly. And often it's the junior doctor in A and E in these situations, or perhaps the junior doctors in the specialty area, uh, will will consult the consultant in intensive care and arrange admission. Um, so there's not really much time to talk about these things and it's very difficult because they've just got a patient to think of, desperately ill patient there, want to get them intensive care, best possible treatment. So that's what they do. The question that we're trying to raise here, this important one, is is this always the appropriate treatment? And I think we're suggesting that in many, many cases it is not always the appropriate treatment because it can do more harm than good. And, you know... We didn't have that opportunity simply because of the speed at which things happen. And don't forget that... Uh, in many, many cases, patients who go into intensive care will be emergencies. Um, there's been no thought of um, looking at uh, surrogate approvals and so on and so forth whatsoever. Um, patients with normal life, something happens, in they go. And the same thing with a major surgery, esophagectomy, for example. Um, they see the surgeon, everything's tickety-boo, and then the patient needs intensive care after. So there's probably not been a reason to talk to them, except that... I think what, we, what we're saying here is that there are many situations where those discussions should have place with patients who come in for elective treatment, um, or indeed in the emergency situation, the relatives should be talked to about the, um, the likely outcomes of a prolonged stay in intensive care. If we can sort of shift focus a little bit, uh, I want to talk about having 
those kind of conversations and um, talking about the the potential adverse uh, outcomes um, that ICU has. Now, obviously, there will be independent ones depending on on the treatment one gets within ICU. But I thought uh, there was a line in your article um, where you talk about the sort of psychological burden on it and the fact that some patients um, experience PTSD after being admitted. I didn't know that that was was a thing. Mm. Yeah, quite. Um, So intensive care... um the, the burdens of intensive care have become uh, more known over the last decade decade or so. Um, patients, uh, particularly those that are intubated actually, are the ones that tend to be at higher risk of adverse events. Um, if you think about it, if someone's intubated um, and they're on a ventilator, um, they can't talk, um, therefore communication is difficult for them. They're often in and out of sedation because one has to sedate patients sometimes for tube tolerance purposes. Um, thirst is a big problem for intensive care. Um, they've got drips and lines and tubes coming out of them. Um, they are um, often weak. Um, and actually, weakness is a profound problem uh, because if someone's not doing anything and is bed bound, um, one loses muscle mass. And the same goes for someone on a ventilator. So someone is ventilated for acute respiratory problem or some some other problem, then the more the, the longer they are on a ventilator, uh, the weaker their diaphragmatic muscles become and the harder it might be to wean from a ventilator. And if patients can't get off a ventilator quickly, uh, they may end up with a tracheostomy um, and a prolonged period of rehabilitation. So that's the physical side. Now, we try and start rehabilitation from day one on intensive care units where possible. Uh, but despite that, patients still um, might have long-lasting physical weakness. And then from a psychological side, um, patients, delirium is a very common problem in intensive care. And some studies have actually uh, suggested that delirium can occur as commonly 70% in intensive care patients. Um, and I have actually spoken to patients about what their experiences were of intensive care. And um, I, I had one, 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 ex- one encounter of a patient who, who gen- had genuinely thought that the nurse by their bedside was trying to kill them. So if you think of someone in that position, they're intubated, they can't communicate. Um, they have genuine thoughts that the person uh, is trying to kill them. They can't move because they're weak. Um, and what they often do was would be, as would anyone do, would be to thrash around. Now, the nurse would interpret that as them being agitated, and then what happens? They get sedated. And this, this can occur quite commonly. Uh, in addition to that, um, sleep deprivation is, is, is very common in intensive care um, because of the effects of illness. Noise is a problem. Patients are, are hooked up to monitors which have alarms going off. Um, and although, you know, particularly at night time, people don't try and be quiet, noise is a problem and that can cause sleep deprivation. So all of these factors really uh, are associated with an unpleasant experience. And if you think about that patient who who thought that nurse was trying to kill them, if they actually, it must be absolutely terrifying. Mm. Um, and and, the, and this is the problem that has, has become more recognised um, in recent years. Um, and and a problem which can actually affect patients psychologically in the long term. Mm, definitely. Is that something that you talk to patients about when they are being admitted? Um, it's very difficult. Um, 
I think these are the sort of conversations that could be brought in discussing intensive care at an earlier stage. But when you're dealt with a patient at the end of the bed who's critically unwell, you need to make a rational and timely decision as to whether or not to admit them. Of course, in an ideal situation, you you would want to talk to them about it. But then there are so many other factors uh, that are related to intensive care admissions that, that seem, probably wrongly, to take priority. Um, and, the, and the problem is at, at that stage, particularly for, for patients of families that have never been in this situation before, um, quite, quite, quite understandably, um, the focus is on survival. Mm. Um, and what I what I find from my experience is that everything else, despite trying to express what intensive care, the good and the bad of intensive care, it all seems to be about survival at that time of critical illness. Quite understandably. Um, and often, despite trying to explain these things to patients and relatives, it's all about. You know, am I going to survive? Are they going to be okay? They're a fighter. We're hoping for a miracle, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and so often it's very difficult to have rational discussions at the point of critical illness. Hence the reason for what I think uh, in, in certain cohort of patients, we should be trying to, where possible, discuss these sort of factors uh, at an early stage, either in their hospital admission or in certain groups of patients, maybe in the community. But that's unknown whether that's acceptable to patients or not and that's probably uh grounds for further research i would think mm. and barry when your wife was taken ill would had you had any discussions specifically around things like um dna cpr or 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 anything else you know like those life course kind of discussions no we hadn't ourselves uh, we have subsequently because um, it does bring these things into focus, but we hadn't. We were living our lives normally, happily married, with two children, grandchildren being produced. Um, life was good. Um, so we hadn't even thought about that, and you tend not to. Um, the nearest we got to it were the consultants or the, the director of the unit where she was um, talking to me quietly on the side one day um, about um, she was very ill, she might die, um, and if that was the case, um, that would happen to prepare myself for it and the children. So it was a sweet, that's an issue we got to it. But the, I think the view there quite rightly was that she did not have any of the comorbidities or frailty that we're talking about in the article here. She's, apart from the, the condition that took her in there, she was a fit, healthy woman and enjoyed life to the full. So everything was pointing in the right direction, sort out the acute issue and she'd be okay. That was the theory. Um, so we didn't have those discussions in advance. We just had them during the course of her treatment at the early stages where she was very, very ill. And of course, at that kind of acute time with all that emotional stress going on, it's not the the ideal time to have have it, these. It isn't. And I think the, the other interesting thing about it is, and again, you can't blame the medics for this, and I wouldn't want to blame them. I'll say they're in the wrong for doing it. It's often done um, in the environs of the unit itself. Uh, taken to one side, a small little room off, a, off the busy corridor. Um, and it's very difficult to stop it in that sort of environment. It's much easier um, in the calm of your home, but what's the chance of doing that? Um, and uh, we actually had an analysis um, by Scott Murray talking mm. about this and their experience up in Scotland of trying to do some of these things so people can go and, and read that and listen to the podcast interview to uh, to find out a little bit more about that. Um Earlier on, you mentioned that there are a cohort of patients who 
have long-term conditions who might be going in and out of ICU as exacerbations happen. Um, I wonder, you might not have any research on this, might be, but if you've got any experience of having those patients, having gone through that experience once, does that change their perspective and are they less likely or just as likely to want to be admitted a second, third, fourth, however many times down the line? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, and I think... I think a lot of that depends on the individual and I think it also depends on what they've gone through um, and also what's important to them. So, for example, um, you might have a patient that is very happy to, not happy, but it's acceptable for them to go to a nursing home, be bed bound, uh, be fully dependent for their uh, uh, for, for care and not being able to do anything for themselves if it means seeing their grandkids once a week. Mm. Uh, you might have other patients, for example, who, who if they can't walk, is a disaster for them and that's not the quality of life that they would like to lead. And so I think the, the, the issue uh, regarding uh, whether to, or not to accept patients or patients should be readmitted really, to a large extent, depends on what that patient has been through, what their experience is. And I think uh, um, in, uh, intensive care patients that have been through the experience are... Uh, almost certainly ha have um, probably stronger views as to uh, what they do and don't want in the future. Um, it's quite interesting, actually, about because I'm an anaesthetist as well, and I had patients that uh, was presenting for elective surgery, and the first thing they said to me when I introduced myself um, in the pre-assessment pre phase was, um, just to let you know, I don't want to be resuscitated. So uh, on exploring why that person didn't want to be resuscitated they said that uh, their family member had gone through an intensive care experience and that's something that they didn't want to go through themselves so that was very interesting because from my, my, my eyes this is someone that had gone through the intensive care experience as a family member had seen what their loved one had gone through and decided that's not for them You've talked about having conversations with patients um, at that interface between the rest of the hospital and, and ICU. Um, what about conversations with other clinicians, the people who might want to transfer someone into ICU? Do you feel like those, you know, clinicians outside of, of the that board really understand what that burden of treatment is and, and what admitting their patient to ICU yeah. actually means? Yeah, that's again, it's an excellent question. And um, I think the answer in short is that knowledge of what an intensive care admission means is highly variable. Um, there are some physicians, particularly those that have done some form of training on intensive care, who have got a very good grasp of what intensive care means, uh, and there'll be other there'll be other clinicians that that don't. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad doctors. It just means that they haven't necessarily had the experience or been exposed mm -hmm. uh, to intensive care, and they they're not aware of what it actually means. So this is where I think uh, we need to probably promote ourselves as a specialty, um, and actually work collaboratively with our our colleagues and other specialties. Um, and and to really try and uh, work together. Um, and it's all really about giving the patient the right information at the right time to allow them to have an input into the care that they would want. Um, I do know, I mean, there was a, um, you might be aware of um, 
publication from the Royal College of Physicians uh, talking about dying, which was published uh, last week, um, which looks at the whole communication aspects around end-of-life care um, and how doctors often don't have the confidence um, to actually have these discussions. Um, and... Um, I do know that I think there's work behind the scenes in relation to the Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine um, looking at and the Intensive Care Society. There are two, two uh, national bodies of intensive care uh, to, to perhaps provide some sort of guidance documents um, for non-intensive care health care professionals. Um, again, with the, with the idea of trying to promote uh, awareness about what intensive care means. Mm -hmm. Um, and trying to work together, as I said, for the purpose of giving the patient the right information at the right time so they can be part of the shared decision-making process. Yeah. So that's one thing, um, one step towards it. But, I mean, what you're really talking about here is a culture change in, mm -hmm. in medicine. And all the things that you've talked about in here, you know, the variations in, in patients, in the treatment that they'll require, what that means for the outcomes. It's going to be really hard to systematize this, mm -hmm. to make it, um, you know, put some simple rules in place for, for how it works. Yeah. So just wondering, you know, from your point of view, what are you doing in your practice in Northwick Park to change some of this, to try and talk to the rest of the hospital, talk to patients to actually yeah. make uh, make some of the change that you're calling for? Um, at Northwick Park, for example, we are. I'm working collaboratively with uh, colleagues in palliative care, colleagues in acute medicine um, and surgeons as well, um, and, and those in emergency departments to, um, to come up with a system uh, where, number one, we can identify the patients that are high risk and those uh, of 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 worse outcomes, those that are towards the end stage of their lives, um, to be able to um, develop some form of program, training program for healthcare professionals to allow them to be more confident and have the skills to be able to deal with sometimes challenging conversations with patients and relatives, um, and also to be able to document effectively. Um, that's obviously going to be difficult because, um, as I mentioned, one of the barriers is the time factor. Um, but there's no reason why uh, nurses, for example, can't be involved. Specialist nurses can't be involved in this area as well. And one of the things that we are potentially looking at is uh, training a few uh, senior nurses in this role um, to have such discussions. I think the the, the big the other issue is is the uh, the culture the general culture of what the public expects. And I think um, in certain uh, groups of patients um, and certain cultures, there's still the expectation that uh, the medicine is heroic and uh, medicine is going to save their loved one. Mm. Um, and so in addition to the training and the initiatives happening at uh, the hospital level and in primary care, uh, there probably needs to be a little bit more information given to the public about um, end-of-life uh, care and that actually we all are going to get to the point where we're towards the end of the life at some stage and, um, have, and trying to promote them to open discussions with their family members, the healthcare professionals about what they do and don't want. Barry, you've talked to a lot of people 
patients and families and the public um, in your role at the Intensive Care Society. And it seems from this conversation that people's expectations of how well they or their family members um, might be after a spell in, in intensive care are not really realistic, are they? No, they're not. They're not. Um, and in spite of the publicity we try to do through the Intensive Care Society, and that's taken over by the, the Faculty of Intensive Care now, um, is, um, is not really um, widely read. Um, people also need to look at this, I suppose, until it happens to them. And you look for something to help you, and it's there. But it's not something you want to read before it happens, is it, really? Um, and it's and that's it. everything happens quickly with intensive care. The admission is, is, is quick, it's urgent, um, and same from the wards, elective work, it's it's quick, it happens, and the patient has to go intensive care. Um, and you, you know full well from probably your own experience that some operations will not be carried out unless they're guaranteed intensive care bar for the patient when they come out of theatre. Um, so there's no real discussion about this thing, it just happens. Um, Great, thank you. Well, that's kind of answered everything uh, that I wanted to to talk about. Um, Are there any particular points that um, that you'd like to make that we haven't managed to uh, to cover yet? I think the main thing is the article is is stressing um, that intensivists and consultants referring into intensive care need to be looking at what intensive care means to the patient they're talking about because of the aggressive nature of, of intensive care treatment. And it is aggressive and it can have long-lasting damage. Young, fit, reasonably healthy people will survive it and come out of it and just chalk it up as an experience. Um, as people get older, or even young people who are frail for whatever reason, um, are less likely to get over it and could find that the treatment has actually made their conditions worse. And that's the tragedy of it. People's expectations are it's going to get them sorted and it could actually make their existing conditions worse later on in life. And this is more geared up to people understanding that and assessing it. As we say in the article, there should be some discussion going on with patients all the way through there and possibly when they go into hospital um, as as elective cases. Um, You can't do it with emergency cases because sometimes the patient will be unconscious and the relatives in a distraught state, they can't really fully understand what's going on. So it's a difficult dilemma that with elective cases going to hospital, yeah, that discussion should take place very early on. So I suppose I could sum this up by saying this is more of a call to uh, include uh, intensive care physicians in the in the group that's talking about this rather than having a, a, an absolute answer. I think I think so. I think I think probably historically, um, intensive care has been very much a insular specialty. Um, you know, we're we're mainly interested in uh, care that's that's provided on the intensive care units. I think I think in recent times there may have been a push away from that, and actually, our involvement really as as intensive care clinicians is is probably before intensive care, before patients become a critical and well, ideally, to explain what intensive care is about obviously on intensive care and also after intensive care, trying to support those patients that have gone through intensive care and trying to allow them to get back to as good a quality of life as they had before they came to hospital. So I see a role, uh, extended role if you like, of intensive care, not just confined to the intensive care unit, but a bit before and 
a bit after. Now, after intensive care, there are lots of um, centres that offer ICU follow-up services. Um, again, there's not really any um, unified uh, approach to this or any guidance for this. I'm sure there will be in the future. Mm, great. Thank you. You've been listening to Jamie Gross and Barry Williams talk about their article, Intensive Care, Balancing Risk and Benefit to Facilitate Informed Decision. That's available for free on bmj.com. And as I said during this podcast, uh, we've talked about similar things in the podcast before. And if you head to that article online, you'll be able to find links to all of those too. That's it for this podcast. We'll be back next with new research which looks at genetic risk of stroke and if a healthy lifestyle can modify that. We'll also be back soon with a new rapid recommendation that has implications for a lot of care in hospital. It questions the routine use of oxygen in acutely ill patients. So subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from so you don't miss out on that. Whilst you're there, please do rate and review us. It really helps other people to find us. Until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. Thanks for listening.